Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. And if you have one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 944. So you can turn to page 944. For the next nine weeks, we will be in Romans chapter 8. So if you can find page 944, just live on that page. We're going to wear it out uh, over this study. Romans chapter 8. Donald Gray Barnhouse sent out a uh, kind of a poll question uh, back in the 1940s or so, 40s and 50s, and sent out a poll question, and he asked uh, leading preachers and theologians, he said, if you were shipwrecked on an island, and uh, while you were on that island, amidst the wreckage, one chapter of the Bible, one chapter out of 1,189 chapters in the Bible, if only one chapter washed up on the shore that you could hold on to, what chapter would it be? Out of the 20 people he sent the question to, five of them came back and said, Romans chapter 8. 25% of those people said, out of 1,189 chapters, if I only had one chapter, it would be Romans chapter 8. So, this is not castaway. We're not going to be set on an island, but we are going to be digging into and looking at Romans chapter 8. You say, well, why is Romans chapter 8 so good? Romans chapter 8 sets before us the most wonderful blessings that we enjoy as believers. Being free from God's condemnation and dwelt by God's own spirit, adopted into his family, destined for resurrection and glory, full of hope because of God's love for us and because of his promise to bring good to us in every circumstance of life and the ultimate security of the believer in union with Christ. These 39 verses belong, uh, begin, excuse me, these 39 verses begin with no condemnation and they end with no separation. These are powerful teachings about the Christian life. And so as you take a look at this, uh, we're going to look at, at all the verses, the verses, first four verses, but just at the very first verse, it says, therefore, it says, there is therefore no condemnation. It starts out and it says, there is therefore. There is therefore, and you know from all that we have talked about, whenever you see the word therefore, it means that there's something that happened before that I need to understand because I'm getting ready to tell you something that relates to that. So if you looked at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, and he begins to talk about that all of us has sinned, every one of us has messed up. And because we've sinned and we've sinned against a holy God, that the wages or the penalty of that sin is eternal death. But then he gives there's hope in there because God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when Christ went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins and then he was raised from the dead, he gives us that opportunity to come into a right relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven. We are saved from the wrath of God. All of this has been talked about. And then you get to chapter seven and he says, but you know, I still struggle with sin. Even with all of this, I still do the things that I don't want to do. And so in the midst of all of these struggles of sin, in the midst of all that we've heard before, what is the next step? And the next step is found in chapter 8 to where he gives us words of assurance and he gives us direction. So let's read those first four verses of chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and it says this. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the first point, and there's three major points that I want you to write down, and this is the first point. In Christ, you experience no condemnation. In Christ, you experience no condemnation. Now, let me define the word condemnation. In Christ, you experience no condemnation. So what does condemnation mean? This is the the definition. Condemnation is a legal term that includes both the sentence and the execution of the sentence for actions done. We'll leave it up on the screen. Let me talk about it for just a moment. It's a legal term. It includes the sentence and the execution of sentence. Just in, our, just in the world we live in, if somebody committed a crime and they went before a judge and the judge says, I'm going to pronounce a sentence on you, you will be condemned to spend 20 years in prison. And so there's the pronouncement of that sentence and there's the execution of that sentence. That is, we will place you in prison for 20 years. So condemnation. It is a legal term. It includes both the pronouncing of the sentence and the execution of the sentence for the actions done. And in this verse, it says there is no condemnation. I want you to hear me clearly. He doesn't say there's no cause for condemnation. There's plenty of cause for us to be condemned due to our faults and our failures. He says, yet there is no condemnation by a holy God. There is no eternal sentencing or guilt or execution of guilt for one reason, and that is because we are joined in Christ. And that because we are joined in Christ, he says, there is no condemnation. There is no eternal condemnation from God for those who are joined in Christ. Now, in the theological world, In biblical world, there's a word that we use and it's called justification. No condemnation is the same thing as justification. Let me give you a a definition for that. Once we get these two definitions out of the way, we're rocking and rolling. So just hang on with me. You ready? Justification. God declares believers to be righteous in his sight. That means not guilty because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God declares believers to be righteous in his sight. That means they're not guilty because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We'll leave that up, and I want you to be able to write that down. Because what that means is that when we stand before God, one day when we die and we stand before God and we're believers in Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see Danny, the sinner. He sees Danny, the one who's received Christ as his Savior, And Christ has paid for my sins, and he sees the righteousness of Christ in me. He says, Danny, you are justified, not by any merits of my own, but strictly by the grace of God. And so in this verse, when he says, therefore, there is no condemnation, it means the believer will never face condemnation. It means that you're not waiting for the next shoe to drop because we are justified by faith. We escape the sentence of spiritual death that our lives have justly earned. 
We know in our own legal system, the law of double jeopardy states that a person cannot be tried twice for the same crime. And Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and for my sins. And so when he paid the penalty for those sins, and then we join together with Christ, we come with Christ, and when we come before God, God looks at us and he says, listen, your sins have already been paid for. It's been paid by Jesus. So double jeopardy, I cannot condemn you. I've already seen the, the price has been paid by your son. So what does that mean? That means that as a Christ follower, you should always feel conviction of sin resulting in repentance, but you should never feel that God has condemned you to eternal separation. Our sins in the past, the present, and the future have been dealt with through the death and resurrection of Christ. In this verse, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, there is no condemnation. When you make a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is now no condemnation. There was a Philippian jailer, it's written in the book of Acts, that when Paul and Silas and Paul was in, in prison and, and uh, uh, the um, earthquake came and there was a jailer who thought that they escaped, he took his sword and was ready to commit suicide. And right as he's getting ready to commit suicide, Paul comes to him and says, hey, don't do anything rash. Hey, we're still here. And he said, tell me about this Jesus that you've been singing and talking about. Took him to his home, made a decision. His whole family received Christ. There is no condemnation. Well, this guy was getting, ready to try to, was getting ready to try suicide. There's no condemnation. How about the woman at the well? Jesus met this woman, said she'd been married five times. He's shacking up with the sixth guy that's not even her husband. And she met the... Jesus, she understood he was the Messiah. She told other people about who he was. When she made that decision and she accepted the Savior into her heart, she is under no condemnation. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this book of Romans, he murdered and persecuted Christians. That's like a yikes. That's a bad thing, right? And you know what? When he saw Christ and he accepted Christ as Savior, there was now no condemnation for him. Because you see... The ground is level at the cross. And that ground is level at the cross for all of us, no matter where we come from, no matter what our background is, no matter how messed up your life may have been or you say it is now. I've got great hope for you, and that is that when you receive Christ as Savior, not only does he forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, but he says there is no condemnation. I'm not holding these things over your head. You're not going to come into judgment and then the other shoe drops and he says, well, let me just tell you, I didn't realize you'd done this and this. Not at all. There is no condemnation. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and now there is no eternal condemnation for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. That's the old life. That's the old life of where I'm living in the midst of condemnation. But let me tell you about the new life. And that is in Christ, you experience personal liberation. In Christ, you experience personal liberation. Look, he says in verse two, he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, there's the law of the spirit of life. There's the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Two things. First, many believe it's the Mosaic law, like the Ten Commandments, the things that God gave us in, in the Scripture. And it says, this is right, this is wrong, and this is what the punishment is when you do wrong. 
Some also believe that when it talks about the law of sin and death, that it is also just the power of sin, that power of sin that draws us to itself. And he says, we live in this world where we are drawn to these things. And he says, you have the law of sin and death. However, he says, there's also the law of the spirit of life. And when you think about the Mosaic law, it was powerless to rescue us from the authority of sin and death. The law can describe the sin, but it cannot deliver you from sin. It just tells you this is right or this is wrong. You can read it all you want, but but you have to take action on it. And so it cannot furnish that power. So your question is, is how do I get from the law of sin and death to get over here to the the law of the spirit of life? How can I be set free? The means of this is accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ as Savior. And then it says that when Jesus comes into our heart, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, indwells the life of every believer. And that is when you begin this life of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit exerts this liberating power through the work of Christ, and he takes us out of the realm of sin and death, and then he frees us to the realm of the Spirit of life. Way to remember, set you free, is this. It is liberation from the pull, the power, and the penalty of sin. Setting you free. What does it mean to be set free from that law of sin and death. It means there's a liberation of the pull of sin, the power of sin, and the penalty of sin. The Holy Spirit does not destroy the law of sin and death, but what it does is it liberates you from the pull that tries to drag you down. It's kind of like the pull of gravity. Francis, put this in your mind. In the Old Testament, it talks about uh, the children of Israel. They were in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years. God called Moses. Moses was to be the one that was to deliver them. He came. They did a bunch of plagues. And then finally, uh, Pharaoh said, y'all go, head out. And so as they began to head out and they began to move towards the promised land, Pharaoh changed his mind. He said, that was a dumb thing. We need to get them back. So he brings all his armies together and he's chasing after them. And so now all of a sudden they're standing there and this is the Red Sea here and there's the armies from the Egyptians coming behind them. And they're in a world of hurt and they said, what are we going to do? And God says, I will make a way. He told Moses, lift up the staff. And when he lifted up the staff, it says that the strong east wind that God had blow in, as it blew, it took the waters there of the, Jor- uh, of the, uh, of the river, of the Red Sea. <laughs> I've got them all, Jordan, Nile, you name it. It's Red Sea though. Uh, the waters of the Red Sea. And then as you get in there, it began to separate it. You know, you saw it on TV. It was a great movie. Uh, and, it, and it pushes the waters back. And as it pushes the waters back, you've got, it's like walls of water on both sides. And you look at that and you say, wow, that was pretty cool. But what you have to realize is that gravity, natural gravity of earth is pushing on that water to go back into the beds. Does that make sense? Because when water is pushed up, gravity is pushing it down. Water is supposed to run in those beds. And so while gravity is pushing it down, The breath of God is blowing it out. And as it blows it out this way, it's keeping it up and it is pushing it down, trying to drag it back down. That's a picture of our life. The law of sin and death is constantly pulling at us, dragging us down into what it wants us to go into. 
But yet it says when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, there is this breath of God that begins to push things aside and to keep us from getting dragged down into the realm of sin. It is liberation, okay? Listen, you can memorize the Ten Commandments, but you will not change your behavior by merely knowing the law because we are just weak. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it blows through here, it gives us victory over sin, and it gives us the power of liberation and new life in the spirit. And here's your final point. And that is in Christ, you see God's ultimate intention. In Christ, you see God's ultimate intention. We understand that there is no condemnation. We also understand in here that in Christ there is liberation. We are freed from the drag of sin. Now, the drag of sin is not taken away from us. It's just that we now have a power within us, the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us to fight against the pull of that sin and to liberate us from the bondage of all those things that have been controlling our life. And so when you get to this final point, in Christ you see God's ultimate intention. And this is why he did what he did. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the flesh. To the Spirit. Here's God's ultimate intention. God's ultimate intention is that we would live holy lives completely obedient to Him. God's ultimate intention is that we would live holy lives completely obedient to Him. He provided us the law, He provided us the Ten Commandments. But it is impossible for the law of of God to change human behavior. Law describes sin, it describes punishment, but it cannot change behavior. It is like a mirror. You can stand in front of a mirror and you can look in the mirror and you can see that your hair's not combed, your teeth aren't brushed or so, your face isn't washed, and you can stare in that mirror as long as you want to and and nothing's going to change, right? Right? You have to take action to comb the hair, brush the teeth, and to wash the face. The Ten Commandments are like a mirror. You look into the mirror and you see, thou shalt not do this, this, this. And these are things I'm not supposed to do. But all it is is a mirror. I'm the one that has to take the steps to follow through on what I have seen in God's word. And God's ultimate intention is that we would live holy lives, that we would act on what we read in God's word. So what it is, is I can sit here and I can memorize the 10 commandments and even if I've memorized them, I can still break them just like that. I don't have the power to keep the law of God. However, God took care of that because he said at the, first, at the very first, in that first part of, of verse three, that, he, that, uh, that the weakness of the flesh over here, but yet God did something and look what he did. He took the initiative And he took the initiative to do what the law was powerless to do. And this is what he did. He says, first of all, by sending his son. 
by sending his son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. First thing that God did was he said, I'm sending my son. Now, why did he send his son? Look what it says. He says, I'm sending my son in the likeness of human flesh. Sending my son, stepping out of heaven, coming onto earth in the likeness of human flesh. That means that he was 100% God and 100% man. And by the fact that he was in the likeness of human flesh, it means he felt the same things that we felt. He felt weariness. He felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt rejection. He felt the pain of the whips that were on his back during his trial. He felt the pain of the nails that went through his hand. He was tempted in all ways that we were. However, he never committed a sin. And so by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he put Christ right here to understand us and us to understand him. There's a statement I read one time. It says, Christ became what we are so that we would become what he is. Christ became what we are so that we could become what he is. You see, when God created us originally, it was that we were to live perfect lives in a perfect fellowship with God, but then sin entered the world, and then our sin nature, we constantly are fighting and moving away from God. And so when Jesus Christ came, he became what we are. He says, he became human, just like we're human. So we could look at him and say, I want to be just like Christ. And Paul says a number of times, imitate Christ, imitate Christ. We are to become what he is. So in this passage, he says, what did God do for us? Well, he sent his son. He sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And for sin. Now, that means that his purpose for coming was to deal with sin. And for sin. Now, I'm just going to throw this out to you just so you'll be, not, not so you'll be impressed, but so you can get a great understanding on this. Are you ready? Old Testament, it was written in. Does anybody know what language Old Testament was written in? Starts with an H. That's really good. All right, all right. Somebody said Hindi, but that's not it. Okay, all right, Hebrew. Okay, that's okay. All right, and the New Testament was written in, starts with a G, Greek. So you got the Greek over here, and you got the Hebrew over here, and you got the Greek over here. All right, so they've been having it translated in Hebrew. And then, a few hundred years before Christ came, they took the Old Testament that was in Hebrew and they translated it in Greek. They call it the Septuagint. And so when they translated in Greek, now the reason I'm telling you this is that when you come to this phrase, this phrase that says, and for sin, it's two Greek words. It's a little phrase right here. Those two Greek words are the exact same Greek words that are used in the book of Leviticus and Numbers when it talks about sin offerings. You know how they talk so much about, hey, bring this offering, bring this offering. They were offerings for our sins. You present an offering to the priest, they would kill the animal, and as the blood was shed, it was the blood was covering your sin. It were these offerings. It's the exact same phrase. So what it says, what did God do? He sent his son to be in the likeness of flesh so that he could be the sin offering. And so already in this, we see the incarnation, the likeness of flesh, and the atonement. He came as a sin offering. This is why he sent him. And he said, when he did this, he said, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
I love this phrase. He condemned sin in the flesh. In the flesh. Remember we gave that definition of what condemnation means? You pronounce a sentence and you execute a sentence. What Jesus did, he came, he died on a cross, and he took all of our sins with him. And he executed judgment on sin. When he came to this world and he lived a sinless life, he won a battle that nobody else has ever won before. And that is to live a sinless life. Everybody before him and everybody after him has failed. We have all messed up. None of us has lived a perfect life, but he did. And he won it by living this sinless life. And then he went to the cross and he took all of our sins on himself and he took all of our punishment. And then after that, he was raised from the dead. And when he raised from the dead, he negated the sentence of death and he created this new jurisdiction. It was called the jurisdiction of the spirit of life that we could live in. And he condemned sin. He says, you have been beat. You have been overwhelmed. I am claiming victory over you. And so he claimed victory over sin. He claimed victory over death. He executed judgment on them and says, you are set aside. He's the only person that has ever done that. It's because he's the only person that's lived a sinless life. And so he was able to take all the sins of the world and place them on himself and to go to a cross and to die for it and to pay your sins and my sins. And that is why when we stand in the presence of God and we say, I have accepted Christ as my savior, God looks at his son and he says, you paid for all the sins and there's Danny Wood and he is a part of you and that means you've paid for his sins. So when I'm looking at Danny, I don't see his sins, son, I just see your righteousness in Danny. Thus, there is no condemnation. He condemned sin. He executed sin. He took it out. He had victory over it. And he provides a means for your freedom from sin's bondage and a basis for a fulfilling, righteous life. So in this verse, he talks about how he condemned, how he condemned sin in the flesh. But then you get to verse four and he says, in order, here's your purpose clause, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, God not only redeemed us from the curse of the law, dealing with the guilt of sin, but he also desires that we would live a righteous, liberated life in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he didn't just come so that we could have salvation and that one day, we go to heaven when we die. No, he wants us to have salvation. He wants that justification to be there, but he wants us to live a righteous, liberated life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the very last thing he says is, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is his intention, is that we'd walk a life not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers us to obey the law. Holiness is the ultimate purpose. Holiness, the ultimate purpose of the incarnation, Christ coming, taking on flesh, and the atonement, dying for our sins. The ultimate purpose, that we would live lives of holiness. The end God had in view when sending his son was not only your justification, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments of the law. Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, 
also wrote the book of Philippians. In Philippians 1, 6, it says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you. I was eight years old. It was in the summer, and I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. It says, he who began a good work in you. He started that work at the age of eight. And then what his challenge has been to me is, Danny, I want to bring that to completion. That's where sanctification. I was justified as an eight-year-old, and since that moment, I have been trying to live a life of sanctification to where I could become more and more like Christ. And that is his call for every one of us, is to make that decision for him and then to live that life of sanctification. And the Bible, what it teaches, it teaches perseverance. And our perseverance is described as a walk. Because the very last part of that verse, he says, I want to walk, not according to the flesh, but I want to walk according to the Spirit. That means it's not just a life of a bunch of do's and don'ts that you sanctimoniously check off and say, hey, I'm a believer. Not so much more than that. Because what God's desire is, is that there would be just this normal growth in my life where I take the word of God and it begins to take effect in my life. And that if I have to do some evaluation, that I would say at the end of 2019, I am closer to God, deeper in my understanding of him than I was in 2018. And then my goal for 2020 is that it would be even deeper as we walk together. And it's not a life according to the flesh. He was really clear. He says, walk not according to the flesh. The Bible defines the flesh as jealousy, anger, hatred, bickering, complaining, criticizing, impure thoughts, lust, bitterness. He said, but what I want you to do is to walk a life according to the spirit, a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, if you just took a deep breath and thought about those two avenues, how do you want to walk in your life? Do you really want to be the complaining, the criticizing, the bitter, the lustful thoughts, the impure thoughts, the anger? Or would you want to do love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control? And what God is saying in his word is that I want, you, I want to walk with you. And whenever you think about walk, that is a moment by moment walking with you. It's not I'm running, I'm just walking with you. And that's where you have your good conversations is when you're walking. And what Jesus wants to do is walk with you moment by moment. And when that happens, he will reveal himself in different ways at every mile marker in our life. And that's the excitement of walking with him. I've shared this before, but in 2002, Janice and I had the opportunity to go to the Billy Graham Center to go to the Cove. I know many of you have been there. Beautiful, beautiful place. And so we went there. We were going to be there for about a week. And and the first day we got there was an overview. And they give you this overview of what all is there. And then they, I saw it in the the little handout. There is the overlook. And they said, the overlook is where you can stand and you look over all the mountains and all the valleys. It's just a beautiful look. But I know that a lot of older people go there. I'm one of them now. But, you know, older people go there. So they have to be real careful how they phrase everything. 
And they really scared the bejeebers out of you, uh, telling you all the things that could happen. You know, you could, you could pass out, be dehydrated, uh, have a heart attack. They listed all these things on there. It's, it's like they were covering all their bases. And I'm sitting next to Janice, and this is before I was doing any running. I really wanted the best of shape. And, and uh, I'm saying, well, this looks pretty good. And she says, it looks like death to me. And so, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe I won't. And then these two older ladies uh, in front of me, I heard them over talking. says, oh, I did that yesterday. It was so nice. It was so sweet. Well, game on. Uh, I, I told Janice, a couple of older women are doing this. I can do it. So she said, I said, I'm doing it in the morning. I'm going for it. So sure enough, she packs me a little, a little snack box there and I got a little snack to eat, got my apple in there, got me some water. And uh, we checked with the insurance agent, made sure everything was set. And uh, once she realized the policy was paid, she was okay. Hey, you're on your way. And this was before cell phones. So it's not like I got my little cell phone to give her a call. You got nothing. You in the wilderness. And so I'm taking out this map. And when you take the map out, it's got your lodge and it's got a little dotted line. And then it says the trail begins. And they told us it's a 3.7 mile hike up the mountain and with 20% upgrades. I don't know what y'all know about 20% is pretty good. It's a pretty strong upgrade. 3.7 miles to the top, 20% upgrades. And I said, all you got to do is just go up that little squiggly line and then you start. So I started. The dotted line was seven-tenths of a mile. Seven-tenths of a mile. I mean, it, it's this big, folks, I'm telling you. It looked like if you'd seen the same map I had seen, it would be no further from here to the lobby. That's what I thought it was. I'm going seven-tenths of a mile, and at the end of seven-tenths of a mile, I look up, and there's a huge sign that says, now you're beginning the 3.7-mile walk. I said, I can't believe Billy Graham misled me uh, like this. What's up with him? And so I said, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to take it. Take a shot at it. So I'm walking, and whoa, it does start up. And you're going up here, but then you make these little, like a switchback, and it goes up. Then you make another switchback, it goes up. I mean, it does. It's getting kind of tough. And I'm doing the walk. As I'm doing the walk, all of a sudden, I see this sign. And the sign says, three miles. I said, praise God, I've been three miles. This is good. And then I got a little closer. Three miles to go, to go. I feel like I've been walking for hours. And so right when you get to that sign, there is a bench there. That's good. And I sat on the bench and I looked over, emergency call box. Yes, the old emergency call box to where what you could do is you could pick this box up, you make one telephone call and someone will be there in a four-wheeler to pick you up and take you back home on there. That's a little tempting. I was a little bit tired and I knew I had three miles to go on here and I saw the call box and said, do I get it or do I not? And so only a pastor can think like this because what I thought was if I stay the course, I could die. And they have to have a funeral. Or if I stay the course, I could have a great sermon illustration. So I said, sermon illustration, go for it. So I wasn't going to wuss out. There's no way I was going to wuss out. So I'm going to give it a shot. I took a deep breath. I said, it can't get worse than this. I turned the corner. It did. It kept going up. Oh, no. And then I turned another corner. But then all of a sudden, it hit a spot to where it sort of flattened out. Even went down a little bit. Then went up a little bit. So I'm going the next two miles. I'm walking the next two miles, kind of grabbing all the beauty of nature and everything that's going on. And I'm turning around the corner and there was an, uh, a couple, uh, a little bit of an older couple that I met at dinner the night before. And they were just standing there talking. 
And so I, so I asked him, I said, uh, I said, hey, how are y'all doing? Oh, great to see you. I said, uh, anything going on? I said, well, we saw that sign back there, and we thought that this is where the overlook was. Now we see that it's one mile to go, and we just don't know. And so we just kind of talked a little bit. And so while we were talking, I said, hey, well, as long as we're talking, why don't we just walk? So we just started walking, started heading toward there. And so we're talking and we're walking. And then all of a sudden, just in the midst of all this talking and going on, we saw a sign. All right. David put up that, that sign. Cedar Cliff Overlook, 150 yards. 150 yards. We didn't realize we'd walked that far. And all of a sudden they looked at me and they said, it's 150 yards. I said, that's a football field and a half. I said, I think we can do this. They said, let's do it. So we continued on. And we continued on and we got to the top. And when you get to the top, this is sort of what it looks like. And you get to this overlook and then you can look out and you can see everything. I mean, it is beautiful. And you get up there and you, you just take a, a moment. You eat the apple that your sweet wife gave you and you munch on it and you drink your water and you just sort of drink it in over there. Ah, oh, it was great. We had made it to the overlook. Well, I started thinking about that once I saw that magnificent view. I said, you know, I look back over this over the years and it's like what God is wanting to do with me to say, Danny, I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you every day. And when God walks with you every day, there are some uphill climbs. There are some difficult days. There's some days when you want to just grab the help phone and say, I've had enough, I'm done. But yet what God did is he put a bench there for you just to rest. He says, don't panic. I just want you to rest. I am still here with you. And I will help you through all the upgrades that you have. There are some difficult times you're going to walk through in life. He says, but then again, there, that couple miles that you had, it was an opportunity for me just to see the beauty of nature and to take a walk that was sort of invigorating and to know that God is with me through all those times. And it was almost as when I got to the top that God spoke to me and said, if you will just stay with me and let me walk with you, you will see things that other people who fail to walk with me will not see. You will see the beauty of what I've created. You will see the beauty of what I've done in people's lives. You will see things revealed about who I am and what I do that others will not see because they fail to walk with me. It's not limited to me. It is an open op, uh, invitation to every person here to where God says, I just want to walk with you. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And when you walk with me and you allow me to walk with you, We'll go through the tough times, we'll go through the good times, we'll go through the questioning times, we'll give you times of rest, and we'll give you times of uh, exhilaration. But I just want to walk with you. You see, God sent his son, not just so that we could be saved, that is good, but that we would live holy and obedient lives. And his desire is to walk with us. You know, the great thing is, if we will allow him to walk with us, he will then give us the opportunity to impact the lives of others. You know, that older couple uh, that made it up to the top, at dinner that night, they came to me and made a point, and they said, we want to thank you. 
we want to thank you so much for coming up, talking to us, and encouraging us. Because if you had not come, we would have never seen that view. Thank you. That's what it is for us as believers. Let's walk with the Lord. And let's invest our lives in other people and help them to see the view. To see the things that God wants to show them. As we walk with him, we need to understand there is no more condemnation. There is liberation. And uh, there's not an old life. We now live a new life. And we can move from that old life to that new life in the spirit of God. We can be liberated by the spirit of God. There is no condemnation. There is liberation. We walk with him and we are able to pour our lives into others. Now today, some of you could be sitting here and saying, I have never done that. I've never made that, that decision, but I'd like to. I'd like to either pray to ask Christ to come into my heart today, or I would like to talk to someone about that, or would like somebody to pray for me. That worship guide that Jacob talked to you about, there's that connection card. You can look on the front of it. It's got that first box to say, hey, I prayed to ask Jesus and trusted my life to Christ. You may want to check that. And then as you check that, uh, we got two options. Is that when the, we pass the plates in just a moment, you just hand it, put it right there. Our staff will contact you. Or immediately following the service, we have a connection room right outside these doors. We'll have some of our staff and encouragers. And I would invite you just to walk up to them and say, I just got to tell you, uh, I just need to talk to someone. There's some things that were shared today that I've never done, things new that I've not heard. I just won't talk to you. No hot box. It's just an opportunity for us to talk to you. And for some of you, there may be some things that God has stirred up in your heart today that you say, I really would like someone to pray with me. As soon as this service is over, it's just that connection room. If you're up in the balcony, it's just going right down those steps, right into the connection room. We will have people there, and we want to pray with you, okay? Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, and we are so thankful that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and that because you give us the opportunity to come in that right relationship with him, there is no condemnation. But yet you have given us your Holy Spirit to liberate us and to give us this incredible freedom to live for you. I pray for each person here. Lord, you know their situations. And you know each person, what they bring with them. And for some, Lord, they are just lost in a sea of confusion and more than anything, they would like to be connected to their creator and be connected to you. And I pray that this day, they would ask Jesus to come into their heart, ask for forgiveness of their sins and, and receive you as their savior. And there are others, Lord, that, yeah, they've made that decision, but when they're looking at their walk, it's more according to the flesh rather than according to the spirit of life. And that today could be that turning point. Today is when they get off the bench and say, I'm ready to follow you. And I want to walk day by day with you. So, Lord, let your Holy Spirit speak to each of our hearts and deal with us as you would and continue to remind us of how much you love us and what you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.